Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of my podcast series, The Struggle Continues. I'm your host, Kaya Starks. This podcast offers a safe space for everyone to speak out against the injustices and inequality we face on a day-to-day basis, as well as providing discussions as to how we can overcome these obstacles in our own community. Before we dive into our discussion, I want to address that it has been 2,201 days since Michael Brown was killed by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. This past month, we have learned that no charges will be filed against Officer Wilson. Michael was not armed when he was shot with his hands in the air. Brown's family has since filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the city. But joining me today for my first episode is the author of The Roots of Racism, Mr. James Samuel. Mr. Samuel, how are you today? I'm wonderful, Kaya. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining me um, for my first episode. It really is an honor. I fell in love with your book. Um, And before we kind of jump into our discussion, I think it's important for all of us who are listening to know just who you are. So what made you write The Roots of Racism? Actually, I I realized very early, Kaya, in my academic life that there was a need for such a book as this to be published. A need that would allow others to approximate the experiences of being black person in America and any successful author will attest a good book has a way of using the author as a medium through which the book if allowed will write itself exactly and such and such was the case with the roots of racism uh, exactly and so how did publishing this book kind of change your perspective um, and influence you on your thoughts of how we perform today as a society? First of all, on several levels, first of all, the book was personally cathartic because I needed to share my views on the reality of racism in America as I had experienced it from the unique perspective of growing up both in the South, in the rural and in the North, in the urban ghettos and so I had kind of um, a, a holistic view of the subtle differences of race and racism as it exists but I also became very aware that um, racism by any other means is still the same yeah. it's, it's built on the denigration and the dehumanization of people based Yeah. So speaking of dehumanization, um, when I first read your book, the first introduction chapter, you mentioned a family trip to Lagos, Nigeria, and um, you kind of went into depth about how you viewed Africa and how we also view Africa and how it's portrayed in the media. So how has your experience in Africa shaped your view of the idea of civilizations? I grew up um, with an idealistic view of Africa. I had superimposed in my own expectation the images of Africa as being verdant and green and lush and tropical and just vibrant with flora, fauna, and people who look 
the absence of racism or racial bias. And when my plane uh, left uh, Kennedy Airport, it was, and on the 20-hour flight to Lagos, when it landed, my expectations were profoundly shaken because when you're leaving New York, what you see is the clutter and the cluster of an American city where yeah. everything is just haphazardly thrown together. When it, the plane descended beneath the cloud cover in Lagos, I saw pretty much the same from the vantage point of being thousands of feet in the air. But as the plane landed, I realized that when you leave America and you go not just to Africa, many places in Europe and uh, surely places in Africa and Asia and the Caribbean, you, you come face to face with the raw brutality and the global inhumanity that racism has um, developed among people on a global stage. Uh, Winthrop Jordan in his book, White Over Black, which I mentioned in my book, Roots Over Racism, he talks about how um, when the Europeans, Western Europeans, left and began to venture out in search of new markets and landed into the West uh, Coast of Africa, West Africa, that at that moment in history, the literally the whitest people on the planet came face to face with the blackest people on the planet. Yeah. And in so doing, the European sense of their own whiteness became threatened to the extent that in order to reserve their place on the hierarchy of humanity, which they have imposed in their own mind, it was essential that they reject the humanity that they saw in people of color who were the polar opposites of them. And with that, the, 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 the process of global dehumanization of non-European people was set into motion. Exactly. So I also noticed in your book, um, when I was reading, you also talked about the different encounters between, you know, Spanish and Portuguese sailors as well as European sailors. And um, you also had excerpts from both journal entries from these different sailors, and you can really see the contrast between the Spanish sailors um, and European sailors when they encountered um, people in Africa. Um, the Spanish sailors talk about, you know, the marvelous things that God uses in the composition of man, which is color. Um, and then when you go into the European perspective, it is polarized and it says every white will have its black and every sweet will have its sour. So you can really see how there's a huge difference in the interactions between Europeans and Africans as well as Spanish and Africans too. So what really goes into play with that? That's a, that's a very important piece in the book as it sits, it sets up the preface for everything that follows because Part of racism's structural, psychological, sociological, and um, economic structure is built on the scaffolding of the European worldview, which is the European worldview is uniquely hierarchical, which means everything has a certain gradation or a level. Okay. 
in other Euro in other non-European worldviews, almost exclusively, instead of the worldview being an hierarchy which is vertical, the worldview is cyclical, which is holistic, which means that there is no less beauty in black in white black as there is in white, okay. and there is no less um, spirituality, let's say, in a tree. As there is in a tribe of people, that everything has its place, and that place is uniquely important and essential to the continuity of all things, all life, all people. And there is a sense of of openness that that worldview um, presented to the European, and you can see it, Kaya, when the Africans. In West Africa, first encountered the Europeans, they could have easily decimated a ship of sailors. But they opened their arms, they opened their village, they opened their resources, and they freely shared. There was no sense of a need to subjugate or to dehumanize them. The same thing happened. We see largely in、uh, North America when the Europeans settled in North America. You know the story of、uh, Virginia Dare and、yes, uh, Virginia Colony. Beyond that, you have stories of、um, hospitality among the indigenous people in America. That out of which come our tradition of Thanksgiving. Had it not been for the generosity and the benevolence and the humanity in these people who saw the world as holistic, yes, there were tribes, yes, there were conflicts, but there was not this. Um, blatant overall denial of a people based on their color. Those conflicts was over land and resources and rights and so forth. But they embraced the European, the native、uh, people did here in this country, only to have the Europeans no sooner than they learn how to survive in this new world, they turned and then they committed genocide. They did not commit genocide in Africa. First of all, it was too many, but they did inhumanely kidnap, capture, and bring as many of them over—thousands, in fact—and they subjugated them to a level of. Um, of uh, some people say the Africans were slaves. I don't think they were slaves. I think they were victims. Exactly. Of people. Of, of people. Who enslaved them? And the point being is that you can see this pattern reenacted over and over again throughout history, where the hierarchical worldview of the European comes face to face with the holistic worldview of non-European people, and the end result is always the same: exactly cultural conflict and racial de-、uh, devastation. Exactly. Well, shifting from that,、um, you mentioned a global village,、um, comparing it to our current worldview.、Um, so, how have we kind of shifted as a society from you know this need to dehumanize people to accepting these differences and embracing different cultures? Well, we have evolved, and we are evolving.、Uh, when it comes to the global village, that is a relatively new concept. Historically speaking, that has come about within the last, say, thirty, forty years. Thirty years. Global village、um, 
again, it takes its roots from the concept of um, of the universality of humanity that it takes all of us to be able to sustain um, the the world as we share it, environment, um, the oceans, the air, the water, but also humanity itself. Um, we see we see a progress, at least I have in my lifetime, seen progress in race relations that is hopeful. Now, are we there? No, we're not. But I remember once reading a quote about the ancient Greeks, which says, nothing but Athena ever sprang from the head of Zeus full grown. So whatever we are now, we were not before. And whatever we will be, will be better than what we are now. I'm convinced of that. America is still an emerging country. And you can see that through the onset of this country. It went from slavery to abolition and civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ uh, rights, Black Lives Matter. And the cumulative effects of these protests is making a difference. And my, my suggestion is that we will soon move from uh, protest to, I think, policy, to where we will see uh, some more legal uh, safeguards erected in our country, which will prevent some of the discrimination, the um, injustice, inequality, and surely police brutality. Of course. That has, that has long since been a blight upon this country. But thanks to the advent of personal uh, smartphones and cameras, it's not that it's, it's any more prevalent. It's just that it's just being Televised. captured. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's being captured and shared through a through a platform that was not available to us here. Going back to what you said about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and um, the LGBTQ plus community um, and them kind of banding together to protest against their injustices. Um, you also talk about stereotypes associated with being black. So some of these include being lazy and violent. And I just really want to get an understanding of how some of these myths have affected you as a black man in America and also how we can overcome some of these myths um, and break down the barrier of stereotypes. Um, when we see when we see stereo- myths and stereotypes, they're very difficult to be able to analyze in a sense because fundamentally every stereotype and every myth exists as it does and persists because they are based on an an element of truth, okay, that is wrapped in um, an essential uh, cloak of ignorance. You see, you see these stereotypes, and they persist. You can't get rid of them because they're deeply embedded in in the psyche of the person who is racist or stereotypical. Now. This speaks to the concept of otherness. Um, in my book, I mention um, Winthrop Jordan again. And Winthrop Jordan speaks of the concept of the other. So does um, Carl Jung, so does Freud. Many of the great thinkers speak of this concept. The concept of otherness 
is rooted in the need to reject and dehumanize other peoples because there is not the ability to acknowledge that all people have strengths and weaknesses okay now let's uh look at the concept it was said that um black people are ignorant that's a you know that's this slow and un uh un 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 intellectually um impressive because let's look at what happened here we've been deprived For, of the of education from 1619 until the latter part of the 1800s it was legally criminally and judicially punishable for a black person to learn to read or to write if you were caught reading as a slave then your tongue could be cut out or one eye would be put out If you were caught reading a game, then both eyes would be put out. If you were caught writing, your hand or your fingers would be amputated. And so over the course of what um 300 years this becomes ingrained in a people that education is is dangerous and injurious to my survival. So when you legislate legally that a race of people based on color cannot have education and those who somehow acquire it are maimed and murdered or killed it's no surprise that there is a kernel of truth in the fact that black people have been intellectually academically arrested because even when you remove the prescriptions against education you relegated these people to third class and fourth class and no class educational system you would not allow them to enter in or have access to the educational system that white people had in this country and then those same people look at the irony and the ignorance of racism yeah then you turn around and you then further dehumanize and deprive these people of basic human dignity by calling them ignorant because you have not taught them to read. Let's look at lazy. Black people are lazy, they say. Okay. Are we really? We worked in this country from 1619 to 1865. Day in, day out, sun up, sunset, without ever a single centilla of pay. And guess what? The porch drinking sarsaparillas and mint juleps and lemonade in the shade. while we labored in the fields picking the cotton cropping tobacco growing their crops and they had the audacity to call us lazy exactly alexander de tocqueville one of my other sources in my book was a european um uh, he was a journalist and he traveled to america in the 1800s trying to study the american life america was an interest to many europeans And hence I quote in the book where Alexander de Tocqueville says he was surprised to note this is paraphrasing that in America the black man is called lazy but yet he does all of the labor the white man is called industrious when the labor that the black man does 
Alexander de Tocqueville said, if a white man was to perform the same labor in one day, he would die of exposure and exhaustion because he cannot endure the hard labor in the harsh environment of the South that the black man endures. But yet, that black man is the one who gets stereotyped as lazy. So like the lazy stereotype, a more current um, position because of this stereotype, we're robbed of the opportunity to fill corporate positions at a higher level without you know supervision and because of this it creates frustration and the feeling of alienation which directly impacts the productivity and the creativity i can even see it in my own school teachers um definitely stereotype a lot of the black students at school um, and that was one of the reasons why I picked an HBCU because I wanted a connection with my teacher. I wanted to feel appreciated and not looked down as, you know, a lazy student. Um, and because of this, we, we've kind of created a safe space, I want to say, when it comes to these jobs. And we've also created our own Black-owned businesses. A lot of Black businesses, the lazy stereotype, um, and myth, it really just needs to be broken. Um, I think that if we were given these opportunities, um, you would see just how how much we are worth, you know, these corporate positions. Let me mention uh, a couple things to that very important point. First, on the, um, the, the ignorant point. I like you, when I left high school, which was... Um, integrated high school where I started my education in a segregated high school in Florida and then when uh, my family moved to Connecticut I went to high school an integrated high school I chose to go to an HBCU and I came to North Carolina and attended an HBCU now to help to chronicle that journey of my academic development when I left the HBCU I was I attended Duke University, which is a very white school, as you know. Yes. And I attended there on a full academic scholarship, which they rarely grant. I was um, given, I earned, should I say, a position in a program at that time that was called the Dean Scholarship Program. I had a full ride to Duke. I graduated there with my master's at the top of my class. I then received a full academic scholarship to Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, where I again graduated in the top of my class. So what you're saying and what my life experience has demonstrated is that a person who came, who began education in the segregated schools of the Deep South, ended the educational pursuit in two lily white universities at the top of my class with full academic scholarship. The other thing, let's talk about the whole thing of entrepreneurship and laziness that you mentioned so well about the blight of people of color in the C-suites of these corporations. 25 years ago, I started my own business and I am the president of my own consultancy. My clients over the course of that time have been corporations who have need help when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. My clients for my company have been both regionally, nationally, and internationally um, 
acclaimed countries, Fortune 500 and more. These companies have um, been very, very vital to my success and me to theirs because the perspectives that I have on how to undo the damages that racism has enacted on these companies to where your frontline people may well be people of color at certain, let's say, percentages, but the higher you go up the chain, the whiter the organization becomes. And they don't know how to undo it because this has been something that has been deeply ingrained, not only in their psyche, but in the culture of these corporations for since their founding. Yeah. yeah, since they're founding, if they're that old. And so, yes, uh, we as uh, people of color, we can and we do excel when given an opportunity. And I'm I'm the benefactor of that opportunity, but it wasn't a gift. It wasn't an affirmative action. Um, I competed heads up with some of the brightest white students from all over the world. And I was able to excel because... I am a refutation of the myth that black people are both ignorant and lazy. As I mentioned earlier, um, one of the first formations is the black church. Here we have found dignity and respect and the freedom of self-expression. So how have the values of the black church um, influenced black liberation through slavery um, to current modern day oppression? Um, how can we as a people um, incorporate the black church more into our lifestyle um, and kind of compare it to, from slavery to our modern day oppression? Well, I would say that we begin with uh, a look, a glance back at the way the black church has um, evolved. Um, what most people don't realize is that from 1619, when the first 19 uh, Africans were brought to this uh, shore in Jamestown, Virginia, and sold, until the birth of the black churches. And if you look at the birth of black churches, the black churches as we know it in America did not exist until after the end of slavery. So, you look at it from 1619 until the 18. 80s you ask yourself what happened to black people spiritually during that time I'll tell you what happened the same thing happened spiritually as happened academically from 1690 until the 18, late 1870s early 80s it was illegal punishable by death for black people to worship black people were denied the opportunity to organize form to lead and to gather in worship. As a matter of fact, prescriptions on on congregation was that if more than three black people were together in any place, a white man had to be there to lead them. Therefore, until you see the birth of the Baptist church, the birth of the Methodist churches, which came along at the end of slavery, most people forget about that long lasting uh, several centuries when black people had no church. There is a time in history that is called the invisible institution. That's what that period is called when you look at the development of the black church, which means 
did black people not believe in God? Yes, they did. And did black people worship? Yes, they did. But their church and their worship and their institution was largely invisible. And Kaya, much of it is lost to history because there was no one to record the, the, the actual uh, development and existence of the black church. Much of the worship at that time occurred in the swamps, in the woods, in the hush hollows uh, around the plantations because the people would gather in the dead of night and they would worship quietly to keep the white people from knowing they were worshiping. Now, when the black church developed and it started in the Northeast, when the black church developed, the black church for centuries had a fatal flaw. And that is that the black churches basically were mirror images of the white churches. They used the white Bible. They used the white methods. They used the white structure. It wasn't from the 18, let's just say the 1870s to the 1970s for 100 years Kaya, the black church existed and it grew organizationally but theologically it was still being fed by the white worldview and the white theological view it wasn't until the 1970s and late 60s when the emergence of what was called liberation theology occurred Liberation theology is just that. Now, let me show you what the difference liberation theology made in the world and how simple it seems to us now when we look at it. Prior to the advent of liberation theology, black people basically received their theological insight from white theologians, which basically fed black people servants be obedient to your masters okay? yeah. as if he wasn't to the Lord these are scriptures you see they speak of slavery they speak of obedience they speak of master relationship and white folks fed us that but let me tell you what liberation did when we developed our own scholars they looked into the Bible stories and they found something that is still uh, is still largely unknown to non-liberationists today Everywhere in the Christian Bible where God descended into the affairs of men and women, God never, now listen to this, ever in the Bible revealed God's self on the behalf of the oppressor. Every time God came down and got involved in human affairs, God always took the side of the oppressed over the oppressors. Exactly. He took the side of the weak over the strong. He took the side of the people in bondage as opposed to the people who had held them bound. And so what it's what liberation theology did is it freed the black mind from the bondage of white theology. And that has been a tremendous power in helping black people to spiritually evolve beyond the depression and the oppression of theological thought. 
So this past June, um, we celebrated 155 years since the end of slavery in the United States, um, but this, this did not necessarily end the discrimination um, that was to follow. So some of these companies gave their employees a paid day off and others observed the holiday with a moment of silence. Um, Spotify was one of the music streaming services that acknowledged Juneteenth um, by exclusively featuring black artists on its most popular playlist, New Music Friday. Um, so do you feel that, you know, this is a step in the direction of acknowledging diversity as a nation? Um, or do you think that these corporations are just trying to save face um, when it comes to talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter um, or any um, organization that goes with equality? You're so insightful in both cases because it is not either ours, both and. Yes, organizations and corporations and entities are embracing Black Lives Matter and Juneteenth and the concept of racial equality in order to save face. And perhaps not so much save face, to save finances. Yeah. Look at teams such as the Washington Redskins, who, oh, well, let's just say the NFL, which for so many years castigated and uh, rejected and punished. Um, Colin Kaepernick, for example, and Kaepernick, all athletes. who was the founder of it and other athletes who followed his lead. And then all of a sudden, on the point of a dime, on the head of a pin, when this thing with George Floyd happened, they changed their tune. When Black Lives Matter took to the street, when protests went nationwide, worldwide, they suddenly changed and they pivoted their position and they decided, you know what? Instead of fighting it, we're gonna re- we're gonna embrace it. We're not gonna we're not gonna denigrate uh, Native Americans by calling our team red skin, you see, which is the same as any other skin color. So suddenly, uh, the owner had said he would never change it. Then suddenly he changes it. So yes, saving finances, saving face, so that they can continue to prosper from the sports enterprise. Now the other thing is. We must be able um, to to acknowledge that any progress is progress. Exactly. Um, it was uh, Carter G. Woodson in his book on um, the, um, the the history of Negro America. He said that people who are oppressed must never allow themselves to become too beholden to the tender mercies of the wicked. Now, what he meant was this, is that whenever people who have less than, let's say, um, high regard for another, extend benevolence or any kind of um, assistance financial to other people, it's not for naught. It's because they understand the advantage that is afforded them by uh, somehow supporting or appear to support a cause that is just. Where we would see a change is when the day comes that the self-imposition of white supremacy, which white people impose on others, is such that racial progress will no longer be measured by these acts of charity, but it will no longer 
be measured as it is today by how quickly a person of color becomes white. Okay, so in your book, um, towards the end of your book, you talk about comparing cultures to tables um, and, you know, kind of talking about where a white man um, might feel uncomfortable or hesitant to joining um, this table of culture because he might be rejected by both those peers um, that he's trying to join and also his own kind. Um, so what is some advice that you would give to people who already sit at this table of diversity and culture who might be hesitant to accepting someone who hasn't faced some of the same same struggles as them? Um, what we see happening today is the... Um the continuation of the white man's, and I say man because white males tend to be more in control than other groups, the white male persona has been raised and developed to believe that every time a white male walks into the room with other people, that the white male is going to be the brightest, the smartest, the most influential person in the room. When it comes to race and dealing with people of color, or non-white, the biggest challenge of any group is going to be that posed upon the white male. The white male has never learned how to come and, let's just say, metaphorically, I call it a table, and to sit at the table of brotherhood, sisterhood, and justice, equality, and be comfortable not sitting at the head. Uh, he, collectively, have been raised and reared to believe that his proper place is at the head of the table. He's at the podium. He's in charge. He's setting the agenda. He's facilitating the process. For white men to unlearn uh, that behavior is going to be a great challenge to them. But yet the progress of all people hinders on our ability to help the white man to see that you're not always going to be the smartest, the brightest, and the most insightful person in the room. Um, I remember when I was um, in my doctoral program at Drew, and I was the only African American in my particular class, and I had um, a white student who was from one of the, I think he was from Tennessee, something like that. He said to me one day, he said, James, you're the brightest you're the smartest black man I've ever seen. <laughs> and I said to him, you need to look at the class standings. According to the class standings, I'm probably the brightest man you're seeing. Exactly. Because but if he could not accept that. He had to qualify my brilliance and intelligence to being the smartest black man. Exactly. White men, white men, I understand their fear because they are, they are looking at the world from a zero-sum perspective, which says, Taya, that for one person to gain, another person must lose. But when it comes to race and racism and inclusion and equity and diversity, we don't lose anything by accepting another person on the basis of their abilities rather than on the basis of their color. What it is, is that when we open ourselves up to understand that our differences do not necessarily equate to division, but our diversity actually 
multiplies and adds to the overall results because we all become better, we become more humane, we become more of what we are in this country, we become more equal. Nobody loses and everybody gains, but yet zero-sum thinking has been firmly rooted in the white man's world. In order to keep the black man down, the white man has to be up. In order to keep the black woman down, the white woman has to be more beautiful, more attractive, more desired. You understand me? Yes. Well, thank you again, Mr. Samuel, for um, allowing me to have a discussion with you about this book. Um, I really did enjoy it. It has inspired me. Um, and it's also, you know, given some insight to a lot of my other peers and gave me a detailed perspective um, of to, as to what it means to live in a country um, that's kind of pushed equality on the back burner. Um, so I really do appreciate it. And I'm extremely honored. Um, I want to be able to let everyone who's listening know where they could get a copy of your book. The book is available online. Even though it is no longer in print, it is still being sold all over the world online. Just go online and um, type in my name, Dr. James R. Samuel, no S on the end, Samuel, and the Roots of Racism, and you'll be able to find this book. Or you can go on the website of my company. My company's name is TheInsightConsultants.com. The Insight Consultants with an S dot com and it is listed there as well and um, I have um, a supply from which I gave you and your instructor a copy I have a supply of Arthur's copies that um, I can also make available if a person was to contact me through my website okay all right well thank you so much Mr. Samuel I really do appreciate it Thank you, Gaia. It has been a joy meeting you and sharing with you. And um, I applaud you and I wish you all the success that you can afford as you go forward in your academic and collegiate career. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the first episode of my podcast, The Struggle Continues. You can follow me on Instagram at The Struggle Continues Podcast on Instagram. Um, there, I'll be able to post a little bit more about activism, how you can help, and where to donate whenever it comes to um, all the protests and activist programs that we have. Mm-hmm.